And now, business games. Welcome to a crossover edition of Business Games, where I'm joined by Kyle Church, a co-founder of One of 200 podcasts. Hi, Kyle. How you doing, Andre? I'm doing well, thank you. So we are trying to do something different to what either of us have been doing before. And we, you know, we, we might call it crossover, we might call it pick and roll. I'm nuts about NBA. You probably don't give a shit about it. Uh, so these are all kind of utterly pointless basketball references, but whatever. We're going to pick a topic each and we're going to roll with it. And what uh, the structure of this will be, you pick a topic, go for, you know, maximum 15 minutes, let's discuss it. Uh, I pick a topic, also kind of rant about it. And then we pick a joint topic and then we have another 15 minutes. And so we should be wrapped up within about 45 minutes. So that's not for your benefit. That, that's for the listener's benefit. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so because I picked our joint topic and you'll pick the next uh, next time we do this, let me go first and then you go and then we'll... So. Okay, cool. So the something that's top of my mind recently as uh, people who, who are listening to this are, are well aware is the uh, propaganda. And in particular, having talked to a number of um, uh, people who studied media or research media who are um, journalists, uh, the presentation of the news, the way that the news are covered, it's, it's really, to me, I basically I started thinking more and more about how the news are presented rather than what is actually said. Uh, I wrote an article about the New York Times uh, disinformation where basically they lie and it's provable. And I devised a framework with that, that helped me to think about the news. And it, basically it goes back to um, who's interested, who's interested in this particular news item presented in this particular way. So I picked a topic of the poisonings uh, within Iranian girls' schools. So when did it happen? At around March the 1st, there had been a number of articles about um, poisonings in Iranian schools. And if I... So I'm going to just read some of the bits of the way that it's been covered, uh, both in New Zealand and abroad. And I think New Zealand media is really quite... Okay, so here is... A News Hub article which says Iran investigating after 650 schoolgirls suffer mild poison attacks. So the News Hub article starts with hundreds of Iranian girls in different schools have suffered mild poison in quotes attacks over recent months. The health the health minister said, with some politicians suggesting they could have been targeted by religious groups opposed to girls' education. First of all, I don't understand why mild poison needs to be in uh, in quotes. It's like, are they doubting the words of the health minister? I, I have no idea. Why not just, it just feels like a general phrase that, I don't know why that. And then the second sentence is, the attacks come at a critical time for Iran's clerical rulers who faced months of anti-government protests sparked by death of a young Iranian woman in the custody of the morality police who enforce strict dress code. So they just throw this out there 
com- in my mind, completely unrelated to the uh, to the poisonings themselves, and they don't really expand on this particular topic. They go back to uh, talking about the poisonings. If I look at, uh, then I go to the Guardian. Uh, again, there is a, the dozens of schoolgirls in Iran taken to hospital after poisoning, and then uh, there is a video. Uh, there, there is a photo where you have girls without the headdresses with their backs towards the camera and basically the the opening photo so the, the the prime photo in the article says the series of incidents come more than 5 months into protests that spread across Iran over the death uh, in custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini uh, photograph twitter okay cool so they're citing twitter source again it's just throwing it out there they're starting with the uh, protests and the death uh, just highlighting why a New York Times does more in terms of investigating why, and they're actually saying, or maybe they do not. No, they do. They do get into the protests quite a bit, and they make a connection between the protests. And then uh, the uh, I think ABC, the the Aussies, also link this uh, to the to the protests. Are Iranian schoolgirls being poisoned by toxic gas? Writes BBC and. They have a whole section about finding a cause, and right at the top of that section, it says many in Iran believe students are being deliberately poisoned in an attempt to to close girls' schools, which have been one of the centers of anti-government protests since September. So they're and then they're making basically half the story, and not about the pro, the um, the poisonings, but about the uh, how this is related to the anti-government protests. And with with my favorite citations, many in Iran believe. It's like who? They don't cite anybody. It's just say many in Iran believe. Okay, I can also. Okay, so if we look critically at this, I think it's okay to. I think it's not okay to just throw it in there. I think that's that's utterly inexplicable. Uh, so the lesser media, and and I do put News Hub in there, and even the Guardian, they just throw this stuff out there without really thinking much. I think whatever, whatever you know, in that throwaway sentence, whatever they do is a stretch. BBC tries to, do, to be more thorough, and I'm uh, putting heavy quotation marks in here in, in, in the sense that I, don't, I believe that all of this is, is completely far-fetched, but they spend a lot of effort of trying to make a connection. So, so the way that uh, people cover this particular topic, uh, I think, goes from uh, potentially bad to worse. The um, throwing Iranian protests due to uh, the unfortunate death of a young woman uh, five or six months ago, uh, connecting it to poisonings of how many? So many, right? So what did I say? Six hundred fifty uh, or more schoolgirls. That's, we know why, or let, let me rephrase. I now understand why this, is my, why this is done. It's done to discredit Iran. It's done to always highlight the fact that, oh, we have this terrible regime, la da da they're against women. And there is, quite frankly speaking, a despicable parallel being drawn that, oh my God, the Iranians are poisoning their own schoolgirls. 
so I, I, I think like even, uh, so just throwing it out there is subliminal works on a subliminal way. You, you do it in a throwaway comment. If a reader is reading this news with, with no critical thinking whatsoever, they might not remember, they will remember the feeling, right? They will not remember necessarily any, um, connection because, uh, News Hub and, and Guardian, they don't actually draw many connections, but they will remember the negative feeling and they'll say, okay, Iran bad. If, uh, they are trying to make a case and actually quite an involved case like the BBC is trying to, I think that's, again, that's just, to me, that's just an active, uh, <laughs> misinformation. I guarantee that, yes, there are definitely interests in Iran who probably think that way genuinely. I also would probably go as far as to say that this is probably a very minority view. I don't think that that the vast majority of people really believe that the government is behind um, doing anything to the to the girls. And why would they do anyway, right? But it is presented to us, and given that there are so many sanctions and so little knowledge about Iran as a country, I think that we are programmed to believe that literally anything in Iran is bad. Um, I had been doing a little bit of reading about Iran from the um, Russian sources, and there are a lot of uh, Telegram channels, there are actually Telegram channels that are promoting Iran to Russian tourism in Russian, and uh, I've been looking at watching some documentaries uh, in particular, uh, the Russians want to know more about Iran because, especially since they've been hit by sanctions, they go like, what other country had been hit by sanctions? How are they living? It's new to us. Let's go and learn. So there had been a number of uh, TV crews going to Iran and uh, the just, just interviewing people. And there are also in uh, uh, the, the better universities in Moscow, there are a number of uh, people who... Um, specialize in in middle east and uh you know in, in all sorts of different regions and basically the information that i got from that is um uh a regarding protests protests are actually quite common in iran according to to these people who study iran it is by constitution by iranian iranian constitution allows people to protest they don't allow violence and so the violence is not looked favorably but protesting is not that uncommon. It's actually people, and it's a protected right. So whenever the, uh, if you if you remember, the similar thing happened with the covering of the protests in China. Uh, in in fact, they led to the government of China responding to the protesters and changing policies. But you remember the coverage. The coverage was very negative. Interestingly enough, when, so, uh, oh, sorry, the, the coverage was very negative towards the Chinese government. The coverage was very positive towards the protesters. Unlike the protesters in Canada, for example, who are all neo-Nazis. And so those protesters are bad protesters and they're against, you know, our democratically elected government and, uh, uh, and, and the protesters in China, in fact. So basically the coverage of protesters in different countries in the Western mainstream media depends on the political uh, kind of favor, favorable or unfavorable view of that country. So that's one thing. So Iranian protesters, apparently not that uncommon, typically don't integrate, disintegrate into violence. Second point, 
the thing about, and I've just looked at uh, even at the Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is a sometimes a dodgy source. So one needs to know how to read Wikipedia, but it's I think it's a fantastic source. Uh, but you shouldn't read it blindly, right? You should go a little bit uh, more in detail and look at the uh, citations and, and so on and so forth. But anyway, even looking at a women's um, education in Iran, it's quite widespread. In, in particular, we've got... Uh, there are way more women who go after the high school, who go to the university level education, way more than men. By proportion. So actually, education, and, and why would that be? Well, if you know anything about uh, Iranian, um, basically, uh, Iranian interpretation of uh, Islam, women, are basically, men are not allowed to communicate or to somehow uh, deal with women. So what does that mean? That means that they are not part of the family. That means that police cannot touch a woman. So if a police man cannot touch a woman, so you need police women within the um, healthcare. A uh, so there wouldn't be a male gynecologist, for example. So you need very well educated civil servants and healthcare professionals and lots of other people who would be women. So to me. If 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 I understand that the fact that and and I could very well believe again that there could be some mi- minority groups who may maybe you know want to take a really hardline religious uh, stance and they might want to do the whatever the Taliban treatment, um, even though I think that again right now we don't really know what Taliban is doing because nobody's going there and covering anything. So let's let's park that. But by all accounts, historically, they've been really terrible. I don't think Iran is. And again, we have uh, female scientists and so on and so forth. So the idea that Iranian authorities would somehow try to quell the, you know, uh, uh, and I, I don't even know. And I'm right because the, the worst of the, the worst, the worst of the protests are over, right? So do, do you hear anything about, so, in, imagine a situation where you do not have the protests that are happening now. You actually have quite a lot of and, and, and quite advanced uh, female education situation. And you would do what? Go and poison school? Like, it's just, just the whole idea that this would ever be in anybody's in order that anybody, it's just, it's such a far-fetched idea. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's a far-fetched idea if you take a any sort of rational humanistic there's no point it, it, it would be to to put pressure on girls not to protest after five months after they had gone to the streets it's like there are probably different mechanisms it's, there's there's probably there are probably laws that that you could do you know you, you could why would you poison a school of girls it just makes no fucking sense it only makes sense if we accept that iranians much like russians or chinese are not humans they are in fact Terrible people who just walk around genociding everybody, right? And that's what they do. They're inhuman. So, again, back to the critical reading of this particular of these particular articles. I, I think they are despicable on many levels, but the fact that they are promoting that really in a with a pseudo quasi journalism, pretending to be journalism, and actually looking at a you know looking at a uh, a situation, and then pretending to care about the background but really i think like to me clearly inventing shit up 
It just it just makes no sense. And once I start looking at uh, with that angle of not only what am I reading, but what is the purpose of like why is this particular sentence about a seemingly throwaway sentence about the uh, five months old protest is throwing in there? Once I start thinking about that and thinking from the propaganda lens, I now bas- basically I cannot read the the news articles the way that I've been reading them. Uh, let's say fourteen months ago, right? It it's it just and furthermore some things where would make way more sense. The fact that you would write this sort of, well, I would, you know, filthy garbage, makes more sense. The fact that uh, that anybody would do this to a school full of girls from the position of power that makes no sense. But if you think about why this is written now, why this is written in this particular way, makes sense. So uh, rant over on that, and it's basically one just. We can look at any particular. We should look. We should look at any particular topic that is in the news and start asking questions. Not only of whether these things happened or whether they happened in that particular way, but also who is interested in writing this story now? Who is interested in 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 positioning this story exactly in this particular angle or interpreting it from this particular view? And who benefits? And if you start asking those questions, actually a lot of a lot of coverage makes much more sense, but not from the uh, from the uh, not at face value, but in sort of a of why certain topics get reinforced in particular times. Okay, rant over from from me. I'll edit it down to fifteen minutes. It's it's eleven. I think it's been fifteen minutes. Yeah. Cool. What do you want to cover? Yeah. So something I've been looking at. Um in the last week or so is the coverage of new electoral reforms in Mexico. Uh, and really helpfully, I've um, had a look around and Kurt Hackbath over at Jacobin has put all of the major stories about this into one article. Uh, so you can check out uh, his write-up there as well. Basically, these reforms are, I guess, what we call in the West like an update. Um, they're to bring the electoral system and the voting system up to scratch. Um, and not too much exciting there. I think like with, with any wide-scale reform, there's a bit of stuff there that, you know, you might talk about the merits of um, or otherwise uh, what's something that they are targeting. The people who are part of the Electoral Commission are paid outrageous amounts of money. So they're looking to cut that back. You know, this is something that in the West, um, you know, lowering the cost of public servants uh, would be looked on uh, as a, a fantastic policy. But what we've found is that a range of, I guess what you call legacy media, um, such as the New York Times, uh, have just completely, and I have to say intentionally, uh, misinterpreted uh, what's happening here to try and paint it as a kind of attack on democracy. Uh, so you've got David Frum, uh, you know, well-known 
for helping to justify the war in Iraq um, and still trucking along um, at... Uh, sorry, still trucking along at, at well, at a range of uh, different um, publications, but in this case, The Atlantic, uh, saying that liberal democracy in Mexico is under assault. Um, it's quite uh, strong language uh, considering the actual details of these reforms, uh, but it's followed by a New York Times piece um, doing the same thing uh, and talking about undermining democratic norms. Uh, you've got Financial Times um, who are saying that and this is similar to what uh, Andre was saying around, um, you know, referring to people within the country um, that they found all these academics and business people um, in Mexico uh, who are saying that this is an attack on democracy um, without really citing it at all. Uh, and then finally, over at NPR, um, you got the same thing, saying that it's gutting the electoral commission there um, and that it's an attack on democracy. And I think the most striking thing for me here is that this is exactly the kind of language that if applied in the Western um, media to Western democracies is what you'd hear coming from the far right. Uh, so it's the kind of language that Trump uses. Um, it's the kind of language that, you know, your, your very outsider Republicans use in the U.S., uh, it's uh, even here in New Zealand, it's the kind of thing that, you know, our, our really fringe parties who don't even get to parliament use about stealing elections or, or stitching things up, um, talking about, uh, you know, in, in their case, they talk about the swamp um, or uh, the way that the legislation um, is being used to promote liberal values or, or what, what have you. Um, and I'm not, you know, this is a long-standing, um, there's, a, there's a big, a long history of this uh, in reference to Central and South America from the United States. Mexico is right on their border. Uh, the current president of Mexico um Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador uh, has got rampant public support still um, and is not particularly friendly uh, with the United States. Applying similar a similar rubric to what you have, Andre, you, you ask, okay, why, why is this happening? Um, who benefits from this? Uh, here's a narrative uh, and a, a framing that very clearly wouldn't be accepted or uh, isn't accepted uh, when it's applied at home in Western democracies. Why can it be applied here uh, from, from the very top of uh, Western media pulpits? And it comes down to geopolitics. Uh, it comes down to... Uh, trying to control the legislatures uh, and the politicians um, of people that they, or peoples that and uh, countries that the US sees as being within their sphere of influence. 
um, I'd ask everyone to think about uh, these same arguments being applied by Russia, um, you know, against Eastern Bloc countries uh, and how readily people might take them up or agree with them in, in that case. At any rate, uh, it's, you know, it's clearly um, incorrect. There, there isn't an attack on democracy here. Uh, like the legislation exists and you can actually go and read it. Um, and, you know, there's been other coverage of it, so you can go and read that as well. But it's all in smaller uh, media outlets. Um and the kind of morass of Western media, the Western media diet is dominated by something that is very clearly meant to propag uh, propagandize uh, this particular message. Cool. Thank you. Um, I just remembered two, two things. One is that on... Um, on, on Russian radio that I listened, they uh, reported a an, an U.S. ambassador to Georgia criticizing Georgian government for introducing a law that would classify certain subjects or people, persons, or um, companies as foreign agent. And the irony of all of this, so there is a U.S. ambassador criticizing Georgian law. That Georgian law is apparently a carbon copy of the U.S. law, which does exactly the same. And there is also Russian law, which, which is also a carbon copy of the U.S. law. And uh, on the Russian <laughs> radio, they were saying that we're actually more humane because uh, most, most of the time we just label these things, but we allow them to operate. Whereas Americans, if they find somebody to be a foreign agent, they basically like seize the assets and and just shut it down, and it's not not really, you know. So uh, I haven't verified this, so take it for what it's worth. But uh, but I do, uh, so I have no reason to doubt that particular reporting. So that's uh, and and as you as you rightfully pointed out, and and as as the parallel that I made earlier to you know the coverage of the um let's say anti-government protests in the good western countries versus the evil you know eastern countries it's the same thing so there are protesters protesting certain things that they don't like but you know if they do if it's the tracker protesters in canada uh they're all fucking neo-nazis and like we shouldn't listen to them at all they have nothing to say they're just terrible people uh, but if, if the same people go out and do it in Iran, these are all good, you know, our type of, like, they're just uh, fighting for democracy. It was like, but I, I, I don't know. Anyway, so let's, um, <laughs> thanks. So let's get to our joint topic uh, that my wife recently noticed that the uh, Ukraine stories had been disappearing from the media. Right, there used to be a lot of Ukraine stuff. Uh, there's obviously been a you know one year anniversary of the um, invasion or special military operation. Or uh, Russians actually joke quite quite a bit about it. They say it's a thing that we can we're not allowed to say. Um, 
<laughs> a uh, yeah, three a three letter word. Um, the apparently Putin referred to it as a war. So you know, so it's like uh, so anyway. The but outside of that, and and what what you and I talked about already six months for the for the past six months is that the tenor of the discussion had been shifting and what i've noticed is that now we're having much more of the uh china stories right and the kind of anti-china rhetoric and the uh ukraine is taking a back seat and what does that mean so do do you want to should i basically tell my version my hypothesis and then you jump in or yeah i i think we can do it that way i i just want to um note as well just in terms of the media environment around this that especially here in new zealand um but it, it's replicated um across the world there are very few experts on this stuff right <laughs> there uh, are none in new zealand zero <laughs> and yeah well there you go um what that means is a lot of the news that we get is recycled um it's coming from reuters um it's coming from associated press uh and that that's true in, in many countries. Um, it's either that or we're getting stuff directly from the source. Uh, so we're getting it through social media channels. Um, we're getting it directly from Zelensky. Um, that's been part of uh, what he's been doing um, over the last 12 months is, you know, being front and center and, and producing this stuff. Um, and we're not getting much analysis. Um, we'll get a story and it will have come from Reuters or it will be from MSNBC um, and maybe have like a New Zealand uh, lens applied to it. Uh, and what that means is we're getting like very raw material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, analysis is, is impossible to be had because as soon as you start analyzing it, you kind of have to look at at uh you know actors as if they were rational and you would have to look at the incentives of various people and so on and so forth but as soon as you even you know sort of admit that uh russians might have anything resembling some genuine concerns you're immediately you know put in propagandist i think that the um so, so first of all, I'm sitting on about eight hours now of of recorded material that I keep, uh, you know, not being able to edit. But there's one, there's a two and a half hour um, conversation with a uh, professor of uh, media who specializes in war propaganda since, and he got into the war propaganda in uh, at around uh, September the 11th. He's U.S. based. He's uh, Irish himself, and he's been uh, like he spent all his um, academic career in in the U.S. So uh, you you would never accuse him of being a Russian propagandist, and so he he taught me a lot of things. One was uh, that, uh, as as you said, there are only about three major networks in um, in the world that are um, internet that report international news, and these are uh, Reuters and uh, Associated Press, and there is a French one something concept memories anyway uh they are headquartered in uh, respectively in london uh new york and paris and the way that they work and the way that propaganda generally works is um because they're not able to cover 
everything that they would want to cover. Quite often, they would just talk to one side of the story. And quite often, that would be uh, a uh, person in power. So, for example, if there is a, you know, let's say a despotic president uh, who does stuff, uh, and then there, there is popular uprising against that despotic president. Uh, if, if they just uh, source their quotes from that particular despotic president and don't really talk to anybody on the ground, that's what they report. So it's not so much that they lie, it's just that they take a very distorted view of what the truth is. And just they might report 10% of the situation, and that could be extremely biased. And uh, like furthermore, in um, in uh, smaller countries, they wouldn't even have that. So quite often they would uh, have to depend on the local reporters who are uh, quite often implicated in various uh, dodgy situations themselves. So they're not exactly unbiased. And so if you're quoting somebody who may or may not have been part of a, uh, I don't know, a war crime, and that's that's the information that you're getting and then you're reporting it then uh yeah then and and then that gets amplified by all the media in the western world so we because of our historic connections more to the uk we do depend more on reuters than the associated press and we don't really uh, deal with we don't really repost things from the french agency uh, but on Reuters, we do depend a lot. And so all of our stories are from Reuters. And whenever I try to speak to anybody in New Zealand and say, well, why aren't you covering, you know, like, aren't you interested in the, in the other side? They go, oh, well, we just depend on the, on the Reuters and because they're the experts in this and we're not, and we're just small and tiny and we don't have any resources. And so we just have to depend on the experts. And so whenever I tell them that, uh, well, maybe the experts are lying or they're not reporting the whole truth, like, you know, then nobody wants to have that conversation. So anyway, so that's, that's how, that's the basics of propaganda is then the amplification of these highly uh, distorted stories, like the, um, my favorite uh, case of um, uh, Denisova, who was the Ukrainian ambassador for human rights, who was running around saying that Russians, uh, uh, Russian soldiers are just, all of them are rapists and there is the, they're using rape as a uh, weapon of war. And this is the story that had been uh, picked up in many different channels. It's literally the same story because it just goes to that one quote by Denisova or to several identical quotes. So, but if somebody is researching this, they go, oh, there's the Guardian writing about it, and there's the MSNBC writing about it, and New York Times are writing about it, and so there are so many different independent channels are writing about it, it must be true, because they can't all be, you know, but in fact, it's the carbon copy of just one or two quotes. Now, why is that uh, my favorite story? Because Denisova had been fired by the Ukrainian government for lying on this particular topic. So that lie was so egregious that the Ukrainian government fired her for lying. And this is actually where Ukrainian journalists did their thing because she was telling really horrific stories where they went, hold on a second, these stories are so horrific, do you have any evidence? It turned out after a while that she had no evidence, and then she admitted that she was making everything up. But in the, you know, has there ever been a major outlet in the West that ran a correction to this. No, <laughs> hasn't. Uh, so, 
uh, in, not to my knowledge, and maybe there is a footnote somewhere, maybe not even that. Uh, New York Times wrote an article quoting Denisova after the news of her firing and the reason for her firing had been public knowledge, also in English. So a New York Times ran the story, which is basically basically a lie, like they presented a lie as a fact. But anyway, the, let's let's park that, because I what I wanted to discuss is um, is uh, the shift of the narrative, the current environments. Yeah, the current environment. So that's where it was. It was it was in a situation where anything could be said, um, and it would get published and replicated wholesale. Um, and kind of consumed and um, taken on board without without analysis or critique. Um, but yeah, it has shifted in the last six months. So why has it shifted, do you think? So you and I talked about this uh, late last year um, when I was saying to you that I, I was seeing a shift um, just via social media and, and the news feeds that I keep track of um, towards a, I say, a cooling um, of the US uh, regime towards the Kiev regime. Um, and that took the form of kind of being more open about the idea of talks, um, the idea that uh, Ukraine might not be able to win um, and particularly uh, as a pushback against some of the Ukrainian demands for escalatory arms. So we're thinking um, like no-fly zones and the like. Um, and on the back of that, media um, or, or journalistic reporting began to shift as well. Um, you still had like some outlier stuff so you had the anti-war letter um written by the progressives um in the us uh which they had to back down on really hard um because it was a, a bad look or something um so that kind of thing was still happening but alongside that uh it felt and, and you know this is all like this is not um empirical um, I, I, I can't put this on like paper right now, uh, but it felt like that had moved. Yeah. So I, I, I have uh, two, two things uh, for, uh, or two thoughts about it. Um, one is maybe the more, the more recent one, but the, so originally I, I feel like I think it cannot be interpreted in, in any other way rather than Russia did not want a prolonged war. They thought they would do something fast and they would reach some sort of an agreement and everything would be honky-dory and, you know, and like Zelensky would stay and let it, let it uh, Clearly, boy, like they were unprepared for, for this. I think that's that's fair. I think that likewise... And I'm not going to get into details about why I think Russians did what they did. I think they had no no other choice. They clearly jeopardized their whole uh, economic business model and their whole oligarch business model, which was uh, dig stuff out of the ground and pump it through the pipelines to, to Germany and just earn a lot of money doing that. Uh, all of that is gone. 
So I, and I don't think that you would cut the, the, the branch on which you're sitting, uh, and the golden branch. I don't think you would kill your golden goose willingly if you had other choices. So I, the, this, this whole thing just, but anyway, that's, that's not the discussion. The discussion is I, I do think that it's, it's sensible to, to assume that they probably uh, thought that it would be, uh, quickly over. They had these talks first in Belarus and then in Istanbul, and by all accounts, they uh, came very close to an agreement um, that was then scuttled. Now, I do believe that likewise, the powers that be, and there are many different actors, but let's say the the group of actors that kind of is running with this show in 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 Washington D.C. and maybe in London to to a um, uh, you know so in parallel or. Uh, kind of jointly, uh, I think they likewise wanted a, a fast defeat of Russia. So they pushed literally everything, all of their eggs into one basket. They just went, went, um, what's the poker analogy or whatever. All in. They went all in. Once they went all in, I think the, uh, the media had been activated, the media machinery had been activated, and the media went all in. Uh, Russia was demonized. Uh, all of their, I believe, legitimate concerns had been brushed away. They were basically the second coming of the devil and whatever the hordes and just just these weird and Putin as a genocidal maniac. All of that. Once you have that, it's very difficult to backtrack. So the outcome, like you look brilliant, if Russia is defeated very fast, if the sanctions work. Uh, there is a, I don't know, possibly an internal Maidan in Russia, Putin is overthrown, boom, you know, Russia is brought to its knees and, and la da da Everything is great. It's, it's, a, it's a winning thing. Once they started, basically none of that worked out for neither side. Uh, they are basically now facing a situation where, uh, shit, we, we need to have an exit strategy. I don't think that either side really had an exit strategy. So uh, the 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 danger of of this one sided bias for the um, for the media is that once you present this and you keep on presenting it and you insist that this is the truth, it's very difficult to then back away from that. Because then you would have to admit that you've been wrong, right? As soon as you, like, if you paint Putin as the devil, and then you negotiate with the devil, well, how can you negotiate with Hitler, right? So um, you you need you need a counter narrative. You need to you need to base basically over time. So you need to either uh, and the same thing with Zelensky, right? By all accounts, Zelensky is a ter- terrible human being and corrupt. It's like deeply corrupt politician. There had been articles. In the Western media, saying that he is corrupt, that, that you know Ukraine is the most corrupt country, but now that he's been deified, you know, and then he's now Saint Vladimir and uh, the Second Coming of Mother Teresa, you can never so like how can you run an, an even mildly uh, negative story about him because now you look, you know, like a, a really like you don't know what you're doing. So I think that, and and then there were certain things popping up like the rent. Um, uh, what's called the Rendin, uh, Corporation uh, ran an article, published an article that uh, U.S. should do. It's not in the U.S. best interest to have a prolonged war in Ukraine. So once they figured out that 
quick win is not possible, but we cannot just go back to the, maybe we cannot go back immediately to the uh, negotiation because we've basically talked ourselves into a corner. We need to kind of maybe forget about Ukraine for a while and then sort of run a counter-narrative and then prepare the, prepare the public for a shift in policy. So I think that's what we're observing. And you and I discussed that there had been this, um, um, you know, an attempt earlier on that that died out. Maybe they didn't work or maybe they tried something. And I think that what we're seeing now is the, is the conscious shift in the narrative, first by maybe just reducing the amount of, like, Ukraine will win types of stories just maybe reducing the amount of Ukrainian stories altogether. And again, that's, that's a perception. That's not, a, not an empirical. I think it would be a cool thing to just run, you know, to run an analysis on the tenor uh, and the number of publications. Um, right. And then the second thing, and this is where I want to play it back to you, uh, and, and, and actually just what, what I'm really concerned about. So I'm concerned about New Zealand government being involved halfway across the world in a in a conflict they don't understand. Uh, but at least you could say, well, New Zealand didn't have really that much of an economic relationship with Russia. So it's kind of like, it's okay to sanction Russia and do whatever. It's nothing. It doesn't blow up in our faces. The other thing that the other narrative that had been popping up. I can see where this is going. Yeah, exactly. Exa- okay, good. Uh, so, what are we going to do when the U.S. starts forcing us to put sanctions on China? Because they had identified China as the, as the best, like they're openly talking about a war with China. Like the generals uh, of, the, of the U.S. Army are predicting and telling their troops to, to be ready. Uh, so all of this, again, like all of these statements are not made with no purpose. They're made with a particular purpose. We are, or the the Western public is getting prepared that China is really the you know is even worse than Russia, if you can imagine. Okay, if if I go back to what happened a couple of months prior to Ukraine, U.S. just ran away from Afghanistan, just dumped Afghanistan, right? And by all accounts, they would never have been able to supply Ukraine with all the weapons if they had been involved in Afghanistan. Well, if we take this and, and if we're extrapolating, like it would be easy to make a, a case for they're trying to dial down Ukraine and get, get, get the hell out of Dodge because they are preparing for something bigger. And that something bigger is basically a hot war with China or funding, basically using Taiwan in the same way that they used Ukraine, letting Taiwanese people die, but funding, you know, selling uh, weapons into Taiwan. So, yeah, I, I have one. Um, one slight difference for the the way this kicked off, uh, and that is that I think that there are significant parts of the U.S. Um, regime or you know military industrial complex or whatever you want to call it, who did want this to be a quagmire um, in Ukraine. They did want it to be an Afghanistan for Ukraine where they could just send arms, not directly involved as they were in Afghanistan, um, and ensure that uh, Russia's relationship with Europe was damaged while having them focus on, you know, what, what, what is 
probably an existential threat for Russia if we're talking about nuclear bases in, in Ukraine or, or anything like that. Uh, um, and, and we saw a lot of that. We saw them come outright and say that a number of times. Um, like, we, 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 this is what we want. Um, and they resiled from that somewhat, but I think that still somewhat continues. Remember, if Ukraine becomes a failed state, it is still a thorn in Russia's side. So if, if the US pulls, like, starts pulling back and, and having less funding um, for uh, uh, Ukraine's armed forces, so the same thing happens at this point. Um, there's, there's so much military hardware there. Um, I think that one of the changes has not necessarily uh, been that the US itself is calling, but the US public is. Uh, the US public is pretty non-interventionist, uh, and I don't think it's sitting well um, at the domestic level. Um, but if we're looking at like the Democratic Party versus the Republicans, you know, domestic politics, um, what the Republicans are trying to drum up is this uh, conflict with China, um, and that's why we're seeing this turn. I think, in part. And again, there's there's proof of this. Um, and what was very clear is that, in part, they were trying to bait China into being more forward with Russian aid. Uh, and there was stuff pretty early on uh, where U.S. intelligence uh, people literally made up um, information about the uh, China sending or planning to send military aid uh, to Russia, which they then said, oh, they didn't do it because we put out these false stories first, uh, which is just ludicrous. I don't know if they... I I, I don't think they want a hot war. Um, I think this is about domestic politics uh, as much as it is about geopolitics. Um, China is in a strong economic position, uh they are looking for leverage um and if they can get uh china into a position uh similar to one that have russia in where you know large uh proportion of the world uh in sanctions um stops trading with them um you know especially uh countries like australia then that's going to damage uh, the state. Uh, and that allows the US to maintain global hegemony. I think that's what it's predominantly about. I I really, um, I'd be horrified to think that anyone serious uh, in the military actually wants um, World War World War III. Um, I think they're very, they, they know that that is like an end state. Speaking about, uh, speaking about military, um, I, listened recently to a uh, Noam Chomsky interview on uh, the Duran um, and uh, but basically um, from that interview it came out that uh, Pentagon is actually uh, the doves in the in the administration the military does not want in fact they are they are doing everything possible in order to uh, also dampen the uh, military support for Ukraine because they don't want the war. Yeah, it's a, it's the a military hardware providers who want the war. Yeah, 
exactly. And so, so, so the military is actually putting brakes on, on all of these things. Uh, it's, it's the hardware providers and, and the politicians in the, uh, in the DC who, you know, uh, who are uh, sponsored into their positions by the... Well, I mean, keep in mind that the US already has military hegemony. Um, you know, they, they don't need to do any of this stuff. They've got uh, military bases everywhere. Uh, they, they have widespread, um, I wouldn't say, no, I, I'd absolutely not say goodwill with people, although that, that does exist as well. Um, but very, like, strong diplomatic pressure. Um, there is no strategic purpose. There, there's no good outcome from pushing the envelope on that, from a military perspective, in my opinion. Um, they've already got a situation where that's good for them. Yeah. No, no, it's not a military. Uh, it's not a military thing. In this particular case, the military is just the extension of the of the of the politics, and is, is the extension of the of the uh, lobbyists uh, of the ca- of the capital. Basically, you know, it's the, it's the extension of uh, um, the basic uh, the basics of competition. So, if you cannot compete with your, uh, you know, if you if you cannot compete with your opponent in a uh, fair manner. Uh, you then, you know, you, you do this. And so they're seeing, I don't, I think that, again, for the people who are, and we, we, we agree, there are many different, uh, so U.S. is not uniform, right? Uh, I mean, apart from the fact that the elites do not represent the, the vast majority of people anywhere, and none of them want war because they're the ones who are going to be dying. So if, if you leave it up to the people, they would never want war. But if you leave it up to the um uh, politicians who uh, like who get kickbacks from the military industrial because military industrial complex is interested in war. why the fuck would they like that literally goes to their profit if there is no conflict nobody needs their wares but i've been talking about ukraine as a testing ground like that's a, that's yeah that's actually something that's come out of um hardware providers and mercenary groups you know that's how they've been describing it it's yeah. No, it, it 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 is it is there. So I I agree with some of these, and I think there could be more than there's definitely more than one group uh, pushing for you know in different in different directions. You're right that generally um, Democrats are more kind of anti-Russia, and the Republicans are more anti-China. And so you know, and and in either case, the military-industrial complexes, as long as there is no third, as there is no nuclear threat when everybody dies. You're totally right. Having a conflict halfway around the world is is a boon. It's like you've you've got uh, you've got the weapon manufacturers in the U.S. enjoying record profits. It's it's incredible. The times are great. So from that point of view, I sort of agree with you that yes, a prolonged conflict would also play into that. However, there 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 could be. I mean, a uh, it's is whether it's the con- or the the prolonged conflict with Russia. Uh, or or with China, so that's that's the question. There are different groups that want to shift uh, shift the the focus of the of the conflict, so to speak. My most my most cynical take, though, is that people are bored with Ukraine. Public public interest has has gone down. Zelensky hasn't been able to get around to as many parliaments. Um, you know, people in the US are getting sick of him. Um, like in terms of at a diplomatic level, uh, and it's, the story isn't selling well anymore. 
they they want something new. And and actually, I I, I tend to agree with that cynicism because. Uh, I'm tired, and uh, if somebody who has no connection and doesn't cannot identify where Ukraine is on a map, uh, if 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 you know if people are telling him that uh, oh we put some more billions of, of dollars because let's face it, Ukrainian economy is dead. It's not a viable economy. So and by by the way, as soon as, you, as U.S. pulls its funding, that's it. Ukraine will fall because Ukraine cannot sustain uh, the mil- yes. There is a lot of hardware, but you need shells. A and, yeah, we're and, running out of ammunition. Yeah, and B, you need uh, you need to feed people with something, right? And and just pay them money because why why else would they be fighting? Um, there are a lot of people going into the military because that's the only way for them to earn money because nothing else is working in Ukraine. And so, it, it Ukrainian government has no funding of its own, or it had basically like a quarter or one third of the of the revenue basis that it had pre-war. And still has you know, hypothetically all the same, uh, you know, budgetary pressures, and they need to prosecute the war. So it, it's 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 a um, it's a government that's funded by others. And by the way, that funding, all of that, all of this funding, this is something. That's another point that uh, people say, "Oh, this is aid." That's not aid. These are loans. They have to be paid back. It's Blake. So first of all, yeah, that, that aid, like Ukrainians, most of the Ukrainians, Zelensky sees some of it in his personal bank accounts, but most of the Ukrainians don't uh, because it goes just to the U.S. manufacturers of weapons to provide weapons. And B, like all of these things, they have to get paid back. Like what does Ukraine have to pay to pay back? There's some collateral. What's the collateral? Well, it's these are the natural resources that Ukraine possesses if Ukraine survives. So anyway, so... Uh, it it is on the one hand this quagmire is good, but on the other hand you're right. Um, the the implications for the internal politics. I re- I read an article. I will put it in the in the notes. Basically, the article was um, uh, the second part of the article was was much more interesting. Than the first part of the article and the two parts were completely unconnected. And I have a feeling that the person who actually wanted to write the second half. <laughs> But couldn't get it published, so they wrote the first half. The article says is is basically about Putin supporting like far right and far left uh, groups. You know, there's marginals everywhere. Okay, that's that's the thrust of the article. Uh, however, the second half of the article basically went and discussed how the NATO expansion was purely driven by internal politics and how that was a really bad idea. And so what happened was that when uh, Clinton was running for president, I think in the second term, his opponent was promising to the uh, to the um, a strong Polish expatriate community and, and Hungarian expatriate community in in Chicago and and other places. And Chicago is very strong in Polish and Ukrainian expats. So he's promising them that uh, Nate, that Poland will become part of NATO. Not to be outdone and to get to garner the voting public, Clinton was also so. Bill Clinton also made the same promise. Oops. Uh, completely, uh, but basically there was pushback from all the foreign policy experts and saying this is a bad idea, and so, and so that article. And again, if you think like I, I'm now reading articles in different ways. So as I say, it was a fascinating example of how an article is written first half whatever, clickbaity, second half, much more insightful. 
completely completely and in fact undermines the whole the whole uh, the whole first article whereas the first or the first half of the article was the typical put in bed and then the second half of the article was eh, maybe the us is at fault and you know maybe 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 by by connecting the internal po- so i i totally my point is i totally agree with you about the internal um internal political implications of the US to the rest of the world. And then I have a question, isn't this incredibly dangerous for the rest of the world? Because we have no say in internal politics of the US. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this is why the majority of um, the major global South countries are abstaining um, on most UN decisions around uh, Ukraine. Uh, Because they, you know, these other countries that have um, important global economies and large numbers of people um, who, who have geopolitical power in their own right um, in a way that many states don't uh, understand what the risks are here. Yep. And I've, I've heard, so Lavrov was saying that in private, a lot of uh, African countries and uh, Latin American countries are telling him that we're actually on your side. We just, the best we can do is abstain. Because we, we're, we're under such a pressure from, from the U.S. Like, we cannot really support you outright. But, uh, you know, we're, so um, where does New Zealand fit? Or where, where do smaller countries? Because it, if we are entering into this period of, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, dual polarity, multipolarity, new Cold War, whatever, um, our biggest... Well, some time ago, our biggest trade partner was China. I believe it still is, right? So, uh, in fact, in in this region, uh, everybody's biggest trade partner is China. <laughs> so, w- I I would be really. I mean, part of me is dreading the discussion about um, the sanctions, uh, and like, are we going to shoot ourselves in the foot, or or are we actually going to stand up to the to the U.S. interests and, and go like, no, it's not in our best interest to do that. I think the same here as in the U.S. It'll depend on domestic politics and what plays well electorally <laughs> at any given time. You know, and, and that's... You're right. That's not just cynical. That's that's kind of how um, foreign policy politics works here in particular. We don't have a strong foreign policy um, kind of, what do you call it, civic framework here. Um, I mean, what we should be doing is looking to the Pacific. Um, and making a Pacific block uh, that you know if we if we truly are um, kind of the defenders of independence and, and those sorts of things against uh, you know big bads like China, um, then why aren't we doing more to rally our Pacific neighbors? You know, um, that, that's where we should be looking. Um, I think the economic. Issues with that uh, are probably what's holding it back. Um, you know, we haven't, there hasn't been a development outlook for the Pacific um, so much as an extractive outlook. You know, we're still, we're, we're basically neo-imperial or neo-colonial um, in, in the Pacific. Um, and there's no, there's been no uh, political economic value to capital uh, to change that. I think we're we're well off topic at this point. But. I agree. Okay, cool, awesome. So I let's uh, so thank you guys for listening, and uh, we tried something new with Kyle. Let's see how I edit this, and uh, 
but let's see what comes out. Uh, next, I think we, we stuck to our 15 minutes, even less, on the first two topics. Uh, but the, the last one just, just went, yeah, you're right. It's... <laughs> I think we need some kind of guidelines. I agree. Okay, cool. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Let's see if there will be a next one. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.